Well, good evening. I hope you've had a, a good afternoon. Last week we began discussing the book of Joshua going a little bit deeper. Uh, Joshua is a fascinating book. We talked about this last week. It, it, is, it is indeed a fascinating book, but there are certain places in Joshua that raises questions or are points of, of uh, interest, or, and sometimes there are some places that are disturbing and troubling. And so we're going a little bit deeper in Joshua uh, for a few weeks. We're not going to do this long term, but for a few weeks, we're going to look at certain aspects of the book and, and try to dig a little bit deeper. And so last week, we began talking about the disturbing and troubling role that warfare played in the book of Joshua and in some of the Old Testament books in general. What we, we are really talking about is really the ethical question of war within the context of the conquest of Canaan. And I explained to you last week that when God's people came to what we now call Israel, we always have to remember that when those people came out of Egypt and came to the area we now call Israel, that the residents in those towns, the residents in those cities, did not welcome them with open arms. In fact, they did what most of us would have done. They fought for their land and their homes and their families. The Battle of Jericho is the very first battle. For that land. We looked at that today as they entered the land of promise, the land given to them by God. Chapter 6, we read about this first battle to take the land. And open God's word with me. Let's go back to Jericho this evening. Jericho, uh, Joshua chapter 6, we read about Jericho. And I read this passage last week. I want to read it again. Chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. Talking about the battle, it says, When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so that every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Verse 21 is the disturbing verse. They devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So last week, with that as our platform, if you will, we began to look at the seven essential truths to understanding the conquest of Canaan. And so I want to review the first four because there's seven. We got to uh, through four tonight. We're going to do the other three. But let me review the first four again, just real quickly for those of you perhaps that were not here or maybe you, you've slept since then and you don't remember what all four are, okay? So here they are. Number one, the conquest of Canaan was part of God's redemptive plan. We have to always look at this within the framework that all of this was part of God's redemptive plan. That God was working to redeem the world. Yes, there was warfare. Yes, there was conquest. But God was working within the framework of redemptive plan to redeem the world. Number two. Number two is this. The command to wipe out the Canaanites had strict limits. That God did not give them carte blanche to go conquer the entire world with the sword. But God gave them strict limits. And I'm not going to re rehash all of that. I'm just trying to remind you what we talked about. That there were strict limits placed on them on who they would fight and where and that type of thing. Strict limits. Number three. God made a distinction between cities that were far away and those that were nearby where the people were dwelling. In other words, those that were far away, 
God said, you can make peace with those people. You can offer them peace. And if they accept it, then, then you can live at peace with them and they'll become your servants. But those that live nearby, those who have the potential to, to persuade you, those that you'll be living around, those are the ones that were to be destroyed. And then number four is this. God put Israel in the world to be the channel for His blessing. I want to pick up from there if, if I can, because we talked about this last week, but we didn't really get to finish it. We kind of came to a pause, and we didn't get to finish number four. And let me read it again. God put Israel in the world to be the channel for His blessing. Uh, you're in the book of Joshua. Go over to chapter 3 for a moment. I want to remind you of something in Joshua chapter 3. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that He will certainly drive out before you, that He will drive out, notice this, not that you drive it, but He will drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. I'm going to ask you to remember all those ites. Not, you don't have to memorize them, but I want you to remember them. You're going to see that again a little bit later. And this is how you'll know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out all the ites, if you will. And verse 11, See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into Jordan ahead of you. When we looked at this verse in a previous sermon, I called your attention to the fact that here, it's, uh, the ark of the covenant is, is referred to as the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. If you go to the next slide for a moment. This picture, for me, describes or captures what that Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. This area that you see right in the middle of the picture, right kind of towards the bottom, that's Israel. That's that small strip of land called Israel. And as the Ark of the Covenant was going to go across the Jordan River, it, the people were reminded, this is the Lord of all the earth. And He has the power to give this earth to anyone because it's all His. Leeson Archer said, in view of the corrupting influence of the Canaanite religion, especially with its religious prostitution and infant sacrifice, it is impossible for pure faith to wor and worship to be maintained in Israel except by the complete elimination of the Canaanites themselves. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, and I thought he said it so well. He said, sin is desperately contagious. To compromise with evil... Is dangerous and invites spiritual disaster. So we're talking about the context of God wanted to use this country, Israel, as a blessing to the world. And let me remind you two of the things that were hanging in the balance. The writing of Holy Scripture and the birth of our Savior. God wanted and needed a holy seed because through this people, He would write the Holy Scriptures and He would send to the world a Savior. So it was imperative that God preserve the purity of His, of His people, and they could not be corrupted by those who lived around them. Alright, so that's kind of catching us up on where we were, what we've talked about. Uh, we, last week we did those first four. Now we go to number five. The people of Canaan had been given plenty of time and opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. This, this is so intriguing to me. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. I want to show you something there that talks about 
the people of Canaan being given plenty of time to repent. Genesis chapter 15. Let's start in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. How long? 400 years. Now, now, when he talks about your descendants, know for certainty that your descendants will be enslaved. Of course, he's talking about the Israelites, what we'd call the Israelites or the Hebrew people, being enslaved in Egypt, right? Let's read that again. Verse 13. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But... I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. There will be a day when they come out of Egypt. They will come out of slavery. Verse 15, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Verse 16 is the key verse I want you to see. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to what we would call the land of Israel. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Interesting phrase there. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Here's what was happening during this time. God was patiently waiting for the Canaanites to turn to Him. He gave them 440 years to turn to him. That's what it's talking about in verse 16 when it says that the, uh, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You see, from the Exodus to the crossing of the Jordan was 40 years. Let's go backwards. From the Exodus to the crossing of the Jordan into the Promised Land was 40 years. But prior to the Exodus, they lived 400 years in slavery. And God said, during this 400 years in Egypt and the 40 years from the Exodus to crossing the Jordan, 440 years, they had ample time to turn to the Lord. And that's why it says, as it says in verse 16, that the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God said, I'm giving them time to turn to me. Every miracle God performed and every victory that God gave His people was a witness to the people who lived in that land. But they preferred to go on their way in their sin and reject the mercy of God. And after waiting centuries, 440 years at least, after waiting centuries, God finally turned them over to to His uh, judgment. Now, it's important to remember... That when you go back to Joshua, go with me for a moment. It's important to remember when you go back to Joshua, even at the battle of Jericho. Go back to chapter 6. When you go back to Joshua, even the battle of Jericho. That in Joshua chapter 6, there was a Canaanite family that was spared. A Canaanite family that what we would say today was saved from the judgment. Do you know the Canaanite family in Joshua chapter 6 that was spared the judgment? 
Rahab. We're going to talk about Rahab on another Sunday night. Such an intriguing story. Rahab the harlot, living in the land of Jericho, she and her family turned to the Lord. They repented, and they were spared the judgment. That could have happened to anybody that lived in Canaan. That was the opportunity for everyone that lived in Canaan. For 440 years, God gave them opportunity to turn to Him. So, here's the point. The people of Canaan had been given plenty of time to repent and turn to God. Here's number six. We must always remember God's sovereignty over life. Go with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Can we pause there for a moment? Can I remind you that Almighty God is sovereign over everything because Almighty God brought everything into being? Does that make sense? The psalmist said, David said, the earth is yours. Is that what it says? No. The earth is the Lord's. And watch this. And everything in it. The world. And all who live in it. Everything and everyone belongs to sovereign God. And here's why. Verse 2. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now I know you may be thinking, well, Pastor, I understand what you're saying. But when I think about like the battle of Jericho and every living thing was killed, even the children. Why did innocent children have to die? There's three statements I'll make about that because you see that in other places in the Bible as well where God says, I want you to wipe out every living thing in that town. Why do innocent children have to die? Three statements. Number one, I'm not trying to be coy about this. I am trying to be biblical Keep in mind that technically nobody is truly innocent. The Bible says we are all born into sin. You have your Bibles open to Psalm, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as an innocent person. I got two wonderful children. Uh, not children. I got three wonderful children. I got two wonderful grandchildren. One's four. One is turning a year uh, in just a week or so. He'll be a year old. But the Bible says, even though they are adorable and they are just tremendous blessings, the Bible says, that even they were sinful at birth, sinful from the time that their mother conceived them. Technically speaking, nobody is truly innocent. Number two, keep in mind that children grow up to be adults who will likely follow the idolatrous patterns of their parents. 
Children grow up to be adults and they walk in the footsteps of their, of their parents who follow idolatry. Number three, this is the key point, I would think. Keep in mind that God created life and therefore has the right to take it. And we don't like to talk about that. That doesn't sound very encouraging. That doesn't sound very loving. But it is biblical. Keep in mind that God created life and He therefore has the right to take it. Nehemiah. Go find the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. This, this verse helped me as much as any. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse 5 and 6. Middle part of verse 5 says this. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Then verse 6, watch this. You alone are the Lord. Would you say that, just those words with me? You alone are the Lord. Is anybody else the Lord? No. You alone are the Lord. Then look what he says. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host. And then he says, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You might want to underline that part that says, you give life to everything. I would submit to you tonight that if you can create life, you have the right to take life. But if you can't create life, you don't have the right to take life. People assume that what's wrong for us is wrong for God. If it's wrong for me, it must be wrong for God. Now, put your thinking cap on for a moment. That's not actually an accurate statement. It's wrong for me to take your life because I didn't make it. It's wrong for me to take your life because you own it, not me. Maybe a better example would be this. It's wrong for me to go into your yard and pull up your shrubs and cut your tree down. Because it's not mine. I don't own that yard, I don't own the shrubs, I don't own the tree. But if I owned that property, and if I planted those things, I would have the right to do with them as I please. Now again, I'm trying to be biblical here, because I know this is a hard truth for us to accept. And so I want you to go with me to the Old Testament book of Job. Some of you have studied Job recently. Job 38, this, this whole concept that God is the creator of life, therefore He is in charge of life, really is rooted in Job 38. Job 38, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. In verse 4, God really put him in his place. God said, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. So Job was complaining, and Job was saying, This is not fair, and this is not right, and you shouldn't have done this. And Job, you know, Job, Job has his, his, his struggles, just like we all sometimes do. And God said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. I've listened, this is Shorter's translation. I've listened to you for a while now. Now let me ask you a question. You've been questioning me and what I've done and why I've done it or why I haven't done something. You've been questioning me a lot. So, so God was saying to Job, now let me ask you a question. 
where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then go to chapter 40. The conversation continues, chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuse let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord. And Job said, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Sometimes that's a pretty good scripture for us. God, I'm just going to shut up. Because I'm making it worse. And then go over to chapter 41, verse 11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. That's another good verse to underline. Everything under heaven belongs to me. I would say to you that God is sovereign over all of life, and therefore he has a right to take it if he wishes. In fact, we tend to forget that God takes life of every human being. Did you know that? Have you thought about that? God takes the life of every human being. It's called death. He's in charge of that. The only question is when and how you die. That's the only question because we know that death is ahead. The psalmist in Psalm 31 verse 14 and 15 says, But I trust in you, O Lord, and I say you are my God and my times are in your hands. We need to remember that all, for all of us, our times are in His hands. For all of us, He gives us life and He takes life. For all of us. God is sovereign over life. But let, let me pause for a moment. But aren't you glad that God is also gracious to offer us eternal life? Now, I want to go to the seventh one, and for just a moment, I want to pause, and I want you to think about living in the promised land. Living among the pagans in the promised land. I want you to think in the context of God was going to give this land to His people. And I want you to realize that that little strip of land that we call Israel, even today, that one little strip of land, even today, there is such a battle over that ground. All you have to do is watch the news. Watch the news and there's, there's always this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. This conflict, even today, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, you hear those terms and really it's a conflict about who is, who is going to occupy this land, who is going to be in possession of this land. This one little strip of land. And, and if, I, I talked today about going to Jericho. Do you know that when you go to Jericho today, do you know that when you go to Jericho today that it is the Palestinians who are occupying Jericho? Not the Israelis. And, and those of you who have gone there, you know it's a very different type feel when you go there. It's a very different kind of place. When, when you go there and, and the Palestinians are in control of that land. And same thing in Bethlehem. You go to Bethlehem, Israelis do not control Bethlehem. The Palestinians do. 
And again, when you go into Bethlehem and you go past these armed guards and barbed wire and all that kind of thing, and you get into Bethlehem, it's a very different feel with the Palestinians being in charge there and not the Israelis. My point is simply this. For thousands of years, there has been conflict over that little strip of land. I would encourage you to do something. I've tried to do it. I was trying to do it with this presentation. I just couldn't get it to work. But go to Google Earth. And on Google Earth, you can just kind of zoom in on certain places of the world. Go to Google Earth and just start zooming in on Israel. And you'll see how small it is compared to the rest of the planet. It's fascinating how small it is. And yet how important it is. Because could I remind you, I think I said this last week, but can I remind you, the final battle on planet earth is going to occur on that same little stretch of land called Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo there's still going to be this eternal battle right there over the land this is not a peripheral issue when we come to the book of Joshua and we work our way through the Old Testament this is not a peripheral issue who's going to occupy the land the redemption of God's plan or God's redemptive plan was hanging in the balance God did not want his people to be infected by the pagan idolatry around them because the wickedness there was more than I could describe to you in a mixed audience like this the wickedness there was incredible And God was going to use the people of Israel to be a blessing to the entire world. And Satan was fighting it tooth and nail. And he still is fighting it today. He is still fighting it today. So I told you there were seven things to help us better understand this conflict that we see in Israel and and this idea of, of the conquest of Canaan. There's seven things. We haven't got to number seven yet. Let me show you what number seven is. Here's number seven. The judgment of, of Canaan pales in comparison to the final judgment of sin. In other words, those who reject the rule of God in their lives, those who reject the offer of God's grace, will face a greater judgment than what the people in Joshua's day faced. The God of the second Joshua. I told you today that Joshua means Jesus. Uh, Joshua is the Hebrew name. Uh, Jesus is the Greek name. That the, if you will, the second Joshua. Jesus is going to be carrying a sword one day. Like the first Joshua in Canaan. Carried a sword. Fought the evil that was there. There's going to be a second Joshua, if you will. His name is Jesus. He too will carry a sword. He too will come to the promised land. He too will wage a battle. Let's read about it in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open and There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. That's a good statement, by the way. I didn't intend to talk about that statement. But let me pause there for a moment. With justice he judges 
and makes war. That's true in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Whenever God was making war, it was always a just cause. With justice, He judges and makes war. Verse 12, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on His head are many crowns. He has a name written on Him that no one knows but He Himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and His name is, what is it church? The Word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven are following him. Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We, we sometimes think that God is only a God of love. And He is a God of love. But He is also a God who is holy. And because He is holy, He will one day judge sin finally and forever. And when He judges sin, finally and forever, He will judge the world with wisdom and with grace, but it will be also with justice. He will rule them with an iron scepter, and He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. One day, the wrath of God Almighty will be poured out on the sin of this world. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God, those, uh, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathering together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The judgment of Canaan pales in comparison to the judgment of sin that awaits all those who ignore God. God is going to judge sin. One day, finally and forever, the wrath of God will be poured out against sin. Remember what we read in Genesis about, uh, about the Canaanites, that their sin had not reached fulfillment yet. That God, there was 440 years where God was waiting, giving everyone time to repent. But then there would come a time. Then there would be a day where God would respond 
and their sin would reach their fulfillment and God would send His people into the land to judge the land and to cleanse the land that was His. He did that in the Old Testament and He will do that worldwide one day when this world comes to an end. He will judge sin. Right now, we're in that period of time where God graciously is waiting and waiting and waiting for people to repent. But one day, He will finally and forever pour out His wrath on the sin of the world. And the judgment of Canaan, the conquest of Canaan, pales in comparison to the judgment of sin that awaits all those who ignore God. Well, that probably didn't answer all of your questions, but hopefully last week and this week did give you a little bit broader perspective of why in the book of Joshua we see this conquest, this slaughtering of people. What in the world is happening in the book of Joshua? Jericho was the first battle. I, the city of Ai, became the second battle. There was a central campaign, then they went south, and they conquered the south, and then they went back north, and they conquered the north. A period of about seven years of conquest, seven years of battle, seven years of God declaring, I am giving this land to my holy people, so that through my holy people, a holy Savior can come to the world. And aren't you glad He did? Amen.